0: Chapter 5 of There's Laughter in the Air Radio's Top Comedians and Their Best Shows. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. There's Laughter in the Air Radio's Top Comedians and Their Best Shows by Jack Gaver and Dave Stanley. Chapter 5 the Folks from Peoria, Fibber, McGee, and Molly, Mention of Peoria, Illinois always used to be good for a laugh in the old vaudeville days. The name sounded sort of funny, and it figured in a song Eddie Foy used to sing about the ghosts never walking in Peoria. In short, it wasn't a good show town, and performers made it a target for their humor up and down the land. No one laughs about Peoria anymore but it is still important in show business almost every radio fan knows that fibber mcgee and molly come from there fibber mcgee and molly in real life james edward and marion jordan came to radio success the hard way as show folk they were strictly small timers after they broke into radio they stayed there but it was ten years before they mounted the crest that has taken them to the very top of the popularity heap and kept them there their real success dates from the time they joined forces with a writer named don quinn he's still with them there is no other combination in radio quite like this one that has made the doings at seventy-nine wistful vista so important to millions of listeners who never miss a 9.30 p.m. NBC network broadcast on Tuesday nights. Quinn has the following to say of the program's success. The reason for the success of the Fibber, McGee, and Molly show, and I can call it successful because of the Hooper and Crosley surveys, is that everyone on it cooperates. There is no bickering. There are no jealousies. The sponsor gives us an almost free hand even in the writing of the comedy commercial once in a while a word is changed we aim to please both the gardener and the professor we burlesque people but they are the people who live right next door to you quite some time ago we threw out the greek and chinese characters we do not go in for sarcasm or meanness another reason for the success of the programme may be in the answer quinn makes when asked his opinion of the often heard statement that the radio audience has a twelve-year-old mentality i never did like or believe that statement he says and writes accordingly in short the jordans like other popular radio performers play for character and natural character at that they are the people you know and know well and they have the warm personalities as transmitted through their voices to make what they are doing believable. This ability is just about as important as getting the script right, and it is not something they learned. It is just part of their background. Jim Jordan was born on a farm five miles from Peoria. He had a great love for music and developed into a singer. Mrs. Jordan, née Driscoll, was born in Peoria and also was something of a singer they met at choir practice in peoria st john's church when he was seventeen and she was a year younger and they claim it was a case of love at first sight both studied music after graduating from high school jim clerked in a wholesale drug house for eight dollars a week and courted marion who was slightly more affluent as a piano teacher with a couple of dozen pupils she was crazy about things theatrical despite her parents objections which extended to jordan himself when he secured an audition with a quartet in chicago in september 1917 and became the top tenor in a vaudeville act known as a night with the poets but jim hadn't been brought up on the realities of show business and the routine of one-night stands overnight train rides poor hotel rooms unpalatable food dirty dressing rooms offended his comfortable peoria habits besides marion was in peoria in may 1918 he returned home and tried to enlist but the army was no longer taking volunteers and he had to await his draft call he got a job as a mailman meanwhile and asked marion to marry him they were married August 31st, 1918. Five days later, he was on a troop train bound for Camp Forest, Georgia. Six weeks later, the Peoria private was in France, where he promptly became seriously ill of influenza and spent Armistice Day flat on his back. When he recovered, he was assigned to entertainment duty and thus got back in touch with show business. He put on shows throughout France for the troops waiting to go home. Jim himself got back to Peoria, July 9, 1919, where Marion had been earning a living by teaching piano. Jim had a number of so-called jobs in the next year or so. He worked in a machine shop and didn't like it. He sold washing machines and vacuum cleaners until he discovered he wasn't going to get his commissions. For a time, he was a day laborer, and then he got a job as an insurance salesman. A daughter, Catherine, was born to the Jordans, and they bought a four-room cottage. The couple still kept up their music, singing and playing for club affairs from time to time. One of their performances was caught by Ralph Miller, advanced man for a theatrical troupe, and he convinced them that they belonged in show business. They needed a thousand dollars for the necessary clothes, props and traveling expenses to get started they got it by selling their automobile borrowing five hundred dollars from jim's aunt kate and cashing in their home they played sixteen successful weeks in the so-called opera houses and musty halls of tank towns returning to peoria to get Catherine, who had been left with her paternal grandparents they again embarked on a long vaudeville tour that kept them busy until two months before the birth of their son, James Jr., in the summer of 1923. Mrs. Jordan went to Peoria for the event, while Jim went to Chicago to line up vaudeville bookings for himself. He lived off his capital for six months without getting anything but an occasional café or club date, usually a one-night affair. It seemed that if Jim wanted to play vaudeville, he'd have to do it with his wife so the pair of them went out again this time however they didn't click they went broke in lincoln illinois fifty miles from home back in peoria jim clerked in a dry goods store for ten dollars a week for a year to pad this meager income the two occasionally sang at clubs the old longing for show business cropped up again when they got fifty dollars for an engagement in kewanee illinois so Jim, convinced he'd never get anywhere in Peoria, went to Chicago and formed a singing team with Egbert Van Alstine. Marion and the children remained in Peoria. It was in 1925 that radio entered their lives. While they were visiting Jim's brother in the Chicago suburb of Rogers Park, they heard a broadcast by some singers. We could do a better job of singing than anyone on that program, Jim commented. His brother bet him $10 that they couldn't. Jordan took the dare, and he and Marion left immediately for station WJBO to seek an audition. Those were the free and easy radio days. They got the audition at once and were signed immediately for one of the first sponsored programs in the Middle West. That may sound big, but it wasn't. They broadcast only once a week, and the fee was $10. The program lasted five months, and they ran into debt doing it, but this time Jordan was determined to stick to show business. They returned to Vaudeville for a time, then they went back to radio on station WENR, doing three shows a week for $60. That was in 1927. From then on, things began to look up, albeit slowly at first in nineteen thirty one mcgee became acquainted with don quinn a discouraged cartoonist who had an idea that he could write for radio he wrote a series entitled smack out and the jordans played them as a five times a week serial over n b c jordan had the role of a garrulous grocery store proprietor who was just smack out of everything and who delighted to tell tall yarns popular enough in their own ballywick The Jordans and Quinn plugged away for four years before they hit the jackpot. John J. Lewis, an advertising firm executive, had become impressed with the Jordans' work, and in 1935, when the Johnson's Wax people were looking for a new program for a network spot, the Jordans and Quinn got the job. It was for this program that the characters Fibber McGee and Molly were created. Fibber was a colossal liar. Now, this sort of character's all right for a short haul but difficult to keep going it not only becomes hard to create whoppers all the time but it also palls on listeners after a while when quinn gradually changed fibber's character to just the ordinary little man with big talk and ideas the program really hit its stride and there's been nothing to complain about since the jordans moved to california in 1938 because of marion's ill health in fact her condition kept the program off the air for the 1938-39 season that they came back not only without losing any ground but also at a rapidly accelerating pace that took them to number one spot in the popularity polls in 1941 is testimony enough of the durability of the program not only does marion play molly whose job it is to keep fibber under as much control as possible but she is also the voice for Teeny, the exasperating neighbor's child who is always getting in Fibber's hair, and for Mrs. Wearybottom, who speaks in a monotone without pausing for punctuation. The program has introduced characters almost as loved as the McGees themselves. Among these have been Mrs. Uppington, who is always one up on Fibber in repartee, Wallace Wimple, the henpeck. Mert, the telephone operator, who is only a voice on the program, and Uncle Dennis, a tippling skeleton in Molly's family closet. Quinn and the other players usually get together Friday afternoons to discuss the next show. On Saturday, he plays around with whatever idea is decided upon, and then on Sunday really gets down to writing, usually from 9 p.m. through the night until dawn. The cast has first reading Monday, and it had better sound good to Quinn, because if he doesn't like what he's written, he'll toss the whole thing in the wastebasket and sit up all Monday night fashioning a new script. I will not willingly sell a bad show, he says. The program is unique among the big ones, which do not feature an author-actor, in that Quinn is the only writer. But Mrs. Quinn, who used to be a reporter on the Chicago Daily News, sits up with him in his all-night writing sessions to offer suggestions and, above all, to correct his copy. Quinn claims he cannot write a grammatical sentence. Nancy Quinn, aged six, is a self-appointed critic of the program. Recently, when her father returned home, she advised him that she had been displeased with that evening's show because of the way Fibber behaved. He wasn't polite, she explained. He interrupted Mrs. Uppington all the time. The Jordans live now on a modest ranch near Encino, California, a few miles outside of Hollywood. They have made several films and are in increasing demand. Jordan served two terms as president of the Encino Chamber of Commerce. He owns a thousand acres of grazing land near Bakersfield, California, where he raises blooded polled Angus cattle. He also owns a firm that makes sandblasting machinery and a bottling plant. The clerking days and one night stands are over, but the simplicity of the Jordans is not. Like Fibber McGee and Molly, they remain just people. End of chapter five.